Hello, and thanks for tuning in to The Selection Show. I'm Ian Heath, news editor of CityWire Selector, and with me today I have Ben Williams. Ben uh, co-manages a Japanese equity fund for Arcus Investment and is currently CityWire AAA rated. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Now, this year there's been one country which has gotten investors very excited after probably three decades of being a bit underwhelming, and that is Japan. This year, we've seen the Nikkei 225 index hit its highest level in more than 30 years. But opinion does seem to be divided on whether the rally we're seeing is a short-term or long-term trend. Ben, let's start off. Could you tell me, what do you think have been the key, key drivers behind the Japanese rally this year? Well, for the market, I think there's been a number of different factors. One, actually, at the beginning of the year, the economy was very strong. And if you look at the first quarter, it grew by 3.2% second quarter by 4.8%, which actually was stronger than the US and Europe. So I think that was, that was a factor. And then I think we saw a number of sort of different macro factors. The TSE came out with some sort of corporate reforms for companies, which I think was important. Yeah. The weakness in the yen probably plays an impact. And also, I think foreign investors particularly got excited about Warren Buffett visiting Japan in March as well. So I think that in terms of broad terms for the market was, uh, you know, a number of sort of drivers. Okay, sure. Uh, and which sectors have done the best in, in, in Japan this year and what kind of uptick have we seen? Well, if we, look at, if we look at the sort of the larger sectors, you know, it's been driven by autos, banks, trading companies, uh, utilities and construction. So quite a diverse bunch. It is a diverse bunch and actually... You know, each of those have their sort of separate reasons. For example, autos uh, picked up because of uh, end of semiconductor shortages and the weakness in the yen. Uh, the banks were up because of uh, expectations of Bank of Japan monetary policy changes. Uh, the traders were up because of announcement by Warren Buffett of increasing his stake. Utilities were strong because of uh, falling energy prices. So, you know, I think this is what we like about Japan is that there is a sort of a very divergent sort of set of drivers. And it's sort of different to the US where, you know, all we hear about is, you know, whether the Magnificent Seven has been doing well or not. So big tech stocks in the US, is, you know, that's a big driver. Whereas in Japan, we've got all these different industries doing well. It's yeah, and I think you know, value has done well in Japan this year, whereas mm. actually if you look in the US, uh, growth has done well. And I think you know, it reflects the sort of the different sector moves between the different countries. Okay, so here's the big question perhaps. Is what we're seeing in Japan a flash in the pan or is it a mega trend? We would say that it's a, a mega trend. But to sort of to qualify that, we have to look back at what's happened over the last 20 years, because I think that really sort of sure. sets the foundation of what's happening now. Because if you look at the sort of mega trend that you saw in the rest of the world, I think, I think the Citigroup um, strategist, or the old strategist, Robert Buckland, he, he called it de-equitization, which was basically using corporate debt to buy back shares and undertake M&A. Whereas in Japan, you had exactly the opposite, where you know, companies were uh, paying down debt to the point now where you know, the majority of companies in Japan in aggregate have no net debt. So what is happening is companies are now doing lots of buybacks. M&A is starting to take off in Japan. So you know, when the rest of the world is now facing higher interest rates, you've got Japan you know, in a fairly good position to 
actually sort of undertake this de-equitization that we saw in the rest of the world. Okay, and sure, essential. And just just to drill down on your point about the balance sheets, there, that's that's quite a stark contrast to where Japanese companies were twenty years ago, isn't it? Where, where I believe they were they were quite indebted, weren't they? Yeah. So coming out of the bubble in the eighties and early nineties, you know, Japanese corporate balance sheets were uh, very indebted. But you know, twenty five years of cash flow has been used to pay that back, and I think this is where things have changed because you know if you know, as a fund manager, when I went to go and visit companies many years ago, uh, the priority in management for their cash flow was to repay debt. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas now, most companies either don't have the excuse to repay debt because they don't have any, or they feel more comfortable comfortable about their profitability to sort of have a certain level of debt on their balance sheet. So I think that is the big difference that we're seeing. And I think that gives the foundation for something to be different this time because the balance sheets are so much different. Okay, and what's the, the big driver between um, reducing that debt? Was that driven by the deflationary environment we've seen in Japan? You know, it's not kind of wise to hold cash in a deflationary environment, is it? I think it, it was the deflationary environment. I think it was also a defensive mindset post the bursting of the Japanese bubble. You know, up until sort of 10 years ago, the banking sector was undercapitalized, so companies felt less confident about their ability to go to the banks if they if they required funding. But all of that is all of that has really changed now. Okay, sure. Talking about ten years ago, we had um, Shinzo Abe, uh, the former prime minister of J- Japan, introduce what was at the time a very innovative economic reform program. Um, he's three arrows. Can you tell me what impact do you think that has had in getting Japan uh, to where it is today? And um, could you uh, tell me, you know, how what effect do you think each of the three arrows um, have had? It's a really difficult one to say whether it has been successful because Abe came in in the end of 2012, and really for the world that was at the end of the global financial crisis. So, you know, there was a recovery to be had anyway. So, whether Abe Uh, made a big impact is difficult to say. But if we look at the three arrows, it was broadly uh, fiscal policy or monetary policy, fiscal policy and corporate reform. And I think two of those certainly made an impact. On the monetary policy side, the previous Bank of Japan governor, Shirakawa, I think was rather sort of defeatist. So when Abe came in, a new Bank of Japan governor came in in early 2013 called Kuroda, who sort of undertook some sort of experimental monetary policy, inflation didn't really take off. So I'm not sure if that was particularly successful, but I think it was the right strategy to give it a try. Mm-hmm. On fiscal policy, you know, the mega trend in Japan was corporate sector paying back debt, effectively being big net savers. But the household sector were also big net savers as well. Yeah. So if you've got two big constituents of the economy being net savers, someone has to take the other side. And Typically, that would be the government sector. And what you had for many years is the Ministry of Finance were always very, very keen to balance the books and increase taxes. And that, that in an environment where other parts of the sector are, or the economy are savers, mm. if the government become net savers, that's really negative for the economy. Yeah. So I think on fiscal policy, I think that that was definitely a step in the right direction. And then the third one in terms of corporate reform... I think 
for many foreign investors, they would say that that was probably slower than they would have hoped. But it's been pretty, it's been pretty steady. And you know, our our strategist Peter Tasker, who's been living in Japan for the last forty years, he's of the view that although things may move slowly in Japan, they rarely ever reverse. So the corporate reforms that have happened are unlikely to be reversed. So it, that's certainly been a contributor to um, changes happening in Japan. So in terms of three arrows, I think two have been hit the mark and, and one is a big question mark on it. Okay, and do, do you think we're going to start starting to see the fruit being born, so to speak, of um, the corporate reforms this year? We have seen, you know, you, you spoke about the Tokyo Stock Exchange reforms this year. There's been reforms to the M&A code yeah. as well. Yeah, I think I think they are really important. And I think they've really... I think the market has really sort of sat up and taken notice. So the the TSE uh, initiatives uh, came out at the beginning of the year, and basically they said that companies which have a price book to be below one um, need to come up with a strategy on how they can improve their capital efficiency. And I think this was a big change because there's been lots of companies in Japan where valuations are low, that they may have sort of cash, uh, equities, real estate, and working capital on their balance sheet, which is inefficient. But investors just assumed that nothing would change and therefore wrote them down to a big discount. And I think a lot of that is, is changing now. Um, the interesting thing for us is that although it was announced by the Tokyo Stock Exchange, uh, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry and Japan's FSA were involved in that as well. So we know that it has broad governmental support. And with the M&A rules or the updated guidelines in uh, the summer, again, the interesting thing for us is that came from METI as well. Mm. So we know that the government are you know, very supportive of uh, corporate reform and to encourage a sort of a more sort of investor-friendly mindset in Japan. Okay, so building on a point I made earlier, there there is some skepticism about, you know, the, the, the direction which Japan has taken. Um, we've heard seasoned investors um, say things, you know, this could be, this is another false storm. We've kind of heard this all before. Uh, or things like, you know, well, you can introduce these corporate reforms. It doesn't necessarily mean that the companies are going to act on them. What would you say to people with that mindset? I think there still is are many people with that mindset because if you look at if you, particularly if you look at foreign investor flows, there was very big uh, investment into Japan uh, after Abe came in in 2012-13, and then you know a lot of that money was actually sort of uh, taken out in subsequent years. So, you know, effectively from 2012 to now, there has been no aggregate net buying by foreigners. So I think. There is that, that to us would indicate there's still a certain amount of skepticism. In terms of the corporate reforms, I think the TSE announced this uh, new initiative in January, but they came out with uh, an announcement a couple of weeks ago that they will be publishing a list of companies that have complied with um, the uh, Tokyo Stock Exchange recommendations. And they're going to publish the list of companies from the beginning of next year. Mm. 
So effectively, it's not shaming companies because it's not naming the the sort of the naughty boys, but it's cl it's basically putting a list of the sort of the the good corporate citizens out there. So it's being left up to everyone else to work out who's not yet playing the game. So I think the whole sort of name and shame, I think, means that certainly this policy has legs. Well, it certainly seems like there's going to be that degree of proactivity there on yeah. the, you know, part of the regulator and the government. Yeah, so. absolutely. Okay, sure. Um, as we've mentioned, there have been a few different stories surrounding the success of Japan this year. Um, the, co the governance reforms we've just discussed, um, balance sheets, co stronger corporate balance sheets we, we mentioned earlier, and then the like, thematic drivers for the economy. Um, w which do you think has been the most important? I think in terms of in terms of the drivers, I think um, you know governments reforms and uh, corporate balance sheets really go sort of hand in hand. Uh, but I think you know that is I think that is sort of very important. But in terms of sort of other thematic drivers that you know I think we can identify this year, you know after COVID and also this sort of the geopolitical situation, I think companies are taking. Uh, a great deal more effort to understand their supply chains. So the fact that Japan is seen as a sort of friendly ally to the West, I think is important. And we're starting to see evidence of that in the corporate sector in terms of construction companies are seeing uh, demand to build factories in Japan. TSMC are building a big semiconductor plant in Japan. Pharmaceutical companies are moving some of their production out of China into Japan. Mm. So I think you know that is that's an important sort of thematic driver. I think for, for us, the last couple of decades has been driven by software and network companies, which are very um, US centric. But, but a lot of the sort of global issues that need to be addressed, particularly sort of things like decarbonization, we think our engineering solutions will be required. And I think a, comp a country with you know, a good, strong base in R&D and engineering is important as well. And the other driver is, you know, this huge amount of household cash and how that will be allocated in Japan in coming years. I think that's another sort of thematic driver of the market for a number of years to come. So there's lots of, it's difficult to say which is more important, corporate reform, uh, balance sheets or thematics. They're all sort of working together. And I think, you know, there's a lot at play at the moment. Okay. Uh, turning to the, the macro picture, um, Japan's finally starting to get some inflation, um, something it's not had for a long time. And um, there's increasing speculation. Therefore, it will finally um, tighten up its very loose monetary policies is one of the things that Shinzo Abe introduced. Um, how concerned are you by this sort of factors? And how do you think this might kind of play into the trends that we've been discussing? Um, we're, we're not concerned because I think that inflation in Japan or modest inflation in Japan is, 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 is a good thing. It, it will help uh, boost nominal GDP, which should be good for you know, the baseline for corporate profits. I think it will change the mindset of both the corporate sector and households um, to accept some inflation because... I think the market or inflation in Japan, I think there's been this sort of unwritten equilibrium that's sort of developed where, you know, corporate sector were too scared to raise prices, but the quid pro quo of that is that they wouldn't raise uh, wages. Mm -hmm. Whereas actually now there's the sort of the global inflationary pickup, I think is 
sort of tested companies to actually try to raise prices, and many of those were quite successful at doing that. But the quid pro quo of that is that they've got to start raising wages. So I think we're getting into a position where you've got a sort of more positive equilibrium rather than this sort of static equilibrium of no no price rises, no wage rises. Yeah, it's kind of interesting with Japan, isn't it? Because, again, it's kind of been an outlier for the last couple of decades. It's kind of wanted inflation, where other countries have just always been wanting to get inflation down, which is you know quite an interesting position. They've kind of been contrary to everyone else again. Yeah, and I think the the environment for a pickup in inflation is improving because the the labour market in Japan is now getting tighter. And I think that is an important consideration. And I think particularly for monetary policy, our understanding is that the Bank of Japan is keen to see a certain level of uh, wage growth. And we'll start to see that in the spring in terms of the typical wage negotiations between companies and employees coming through in the spring. And that could well be the sort of the starting point of, you know, perhaps the Bank of Japan uh, really starting to change monetary policy. Okay. And just to pick up on uh, one point we mentioned earlier, was this, this is the uh, merger and acquisition reforms, uh, which were announced at the end of August. Um, can you tell me what impact do you think that will have on equity markets? Because this is uh, qu- quite a new thing for Japan, and it seems like it's going to be quite a big change. Yeah, I think so, because uh, this goes along with the the sort of the TSE reforms, because the TSE reforms, I think, broke a assumption by investors that a lot of these idle assets would Mm -hmm. always remain idle. And I think the other assumption by investors was that there was never really going to be a market for um, basically corporate ownership. Um, Well, there would never be a sort of proper sort of market for Mm M&A because there would be uh, that you know, the, the system wouldn't allow it. But I think the, the, the corporate reforms announced by the METI are really interesting because they came out in draft form in the summer. And basically what they outlined is that management for t- uh, the, the management of target companies would have to outline uh, to their investors how they believe that they could add value over and above a... Uh, price offered by an acquiring company. And we saw this tested almost immediately by one of Japan's largest companies, NIDEC, uh, made a bid for a company called Takisawa. And they made a bid, it was an unsolicited bid, bid about 80% higher. Uh, The share price bid was about 80% higher than the existing share price. And Takisawa management weren't able to come up with a good um, reason for their shareholders not to accept the bid. So I think you know this breaks this whole um, assumption that you know, hostile takeovers can't happen in Japan. So I think that's just another reason why the sort of d- the discount that some companies trade at um, should narrow. Okay, you know, and historically uh, Japan's been known for being quite averse to takeovers, hasn't it? It's been um, very easy for um, companies to resist hostile takeovers. Yes, it, it, it has. And I think, I think part of the change could well be that because Japan now has a very tight, tight labor market, there isn't concern about restructuring a company's leading to unemployment. 
And the thing that was really interesting, if you read through the uh, METI's guidelines, is that it says target companies shouldn't use employees as an excuse to turn down a uh, takeover bid, which effectively means that uh, the government themselves aren't too concerned about an increase in uh, unemployment. And, and when we look at TSC, TS, TSMC, for example, is uh, expanding in Japan, and they've actually got an initiative whereby they've gone out to companies in that region to say, if you've got excess staff, please let us know because we would be keen to sort of speak to them and to employ them. So I think um, you know, the, the corporate reforms, the sort of employment situation in Japan, M&A, you know, things really are changing in Japan at the moment. Excellent. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground, some interesting points there today, Ben. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you, Ian. Thank you.